You know, you hear all about, you know, Wonder Woman and Superwoman and Captain Marvel and all these people, but uh, these are the real superheroes, aren't they, men? Amen. These women and these mothers that we're honoring here today. You know, I had so many pictures. I put out a request on Facebook. I had so many pictures. I had to make two videos. So there was a separate one this morning uh, than there for the 815 service than for this one. So if you weren't at the 815 service, you can go to my Facebook profile and find that post. And you can see all the pictures and even read some of the comments and stories that the moms are making about them. They're really special. You know, it, it is kind of tempting for us to describe moms in superhuman terms, right? Uh, we, we, we tend, especially on Mother's Day, hold women up to these unrealistic expectations. And, and we all know there is no such thing as Wonder Woman. There is no super mom out there you've got to live up to. And the Proverbs 31 woman we read out in the Bible, well, she's certainly a goal worth aiming for, but she's an idealized woman. Well, all the women I know and all the men I know, we're all still in process, aren't we? We're still working at that. So if you don't feel like you've got the looks of a movie star or the domestic capabilities of Rachel Ray, or the decorating chops of Joanna Gaines, or the sensitivity of Mother Teresa, it's okay. No one can measure up to those kinds of standards. In fact, the Proverbs 31 woman is just that, a proverb. She's a parable. And while she gives us qualities that we can admire and emulate, there is no flesh and blood woman like her in the pages of Scripture. Instead, the Bible gives us stories of real-world women who at times succeed and at times fail, who don't have all the answers and don't have all their ducks in a row. The women and the mothers in the Bible are raw and real, and sometimes their stories are painfully honest. To get just a sampling of these real-life women, I want us to look at four. Four Old Testament women today, but these four Old Testament mothers also share a special sisterhood because they're all blossoms on Jesus' family tree. Now, hold on. I know you're thinking, wait a minute, David. I thought you weren't going to hold up these paragons of virtue. I thought you weren't going to compare us to these spiritual heavyweights. Well, I'm not because these women aren't. These four women, as we'll see, are real-world women with flaws and with weaknesses that any of us can relate to. They aren't the kind of women you'd expect to be in Jesus' family tree. They defy expectations. And the first expectation they defy is the fact they're even in Jesus' genealogy. Hebrew genealogy seldom, if ever, mention women. So it's really special that Matthew brings four women into the genealogy of Jesus. And not one of them is there by birth. They are all there by the grace of God. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 and discover... What honest motherhood looks like as we look beyond the outward facades of flowers and greeting cards and platitudes and we look as God looks at these mothers' hearts. Specifically, these women show us how the grace of God empowers women and moms to overcome all the different obstacles that life can give us. First, it shows us that God's grace overcomes shattered promises. God's grace overcomes shattered promises. We see that in the first woman mentioned here. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar's story is told in Genesis 38. She was a Canaanite, a foreigner, not an Israelite, who married Judah's oldest son, Ur. 
Now, she married into this family, but she didn't know she was going to be marrying into such sorrow. The Bible doesn't tell us what Ur did, but he did something so wicked that God struck him down dead when he was still a young man, leaving Tamar as a childless widow. Now, the laws and customs of that day meant that the next oldest son's duty was to marry Tamar and to produce a son through her for his brother, so that the son wouldn't be his, it would be the dead brother's son. But Onan, who was the next oldest son of Judah, Onan actively refused. He was not about to produce a child with Amar that would go to be credited to his brother. And so God struck him down dead. Well then, you know, what's Tamar to do? Well, the next son was too young. You see, Judah's third son, his youngest son, was too young to marry. So, under the pretense of, Tamar, why don't you go home to your father and, and wait, and when Sheila is older, you can come and marry him. But Judah really had no intention of ever letting this third son potentially fall under the same fate as his other two. And so Judah proved that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, because he really wasn't any better than his son's. Judah abdicated his responsibility to his daughter-in-law and sent her away basically statusless. She wasn't a virgin. She wasn't a mother. She wasn't a wife. In that culture, she literally didn't belong anywhere. And so she was a victim, a true victim of the selfishness and irresponsibility of the men in her life. And she's suffering shattered promises and broken dreams. Sadly, Tamar is representative of too many women today. Now, y'all, we have to take the politics out of, out of issues like domestic abuse, rape, sexual assault, divorce, other ways that women are disadvantaged, abused, and neglected, particularly in other parts of the world where women today still are treated as little more than property and have little to no rights of their own. Those statistics and those stories are all too real. And as Christians, we must speak up and stand up for all women because all women were created in the image of God. All women are loved by Jesus Christ. And God desires for all women to come to faith in Christ and be a part of His redemptive plan. Amen? Maybe this morning you're hearing this and you're thinking how much you can relate to Tamar. Perhaps your life is in utter chaos and you feel directionless statusless, or just less because of shattered promises. Maybe like Tamar, you're a victim of of circumstances and of someone else's bad choices. But I want you to look at Tamar as an example because Tamar refused to play the role of a victim. She refused to wallow in self-pity. She wasn't going to let someone else's wickedness and broken promises and irresponsibility dictate how her life turned out. So Tamar took action. She did something. Now, what she did, we can't condone. I mean, she did the wrong thing for a just reason. She heard that her father-in-law was nearby. Years have passed. She's been totally neglected. She hears that Judah's nearby, so she dresses up as a prostitute, and she sits by the road. He sees her. He's interested. They negotiate a price. He doesn't have any money on him. So, to as a pledge for his payment... He gives her his, his, his signet ring, his cord, and his staff. Basically, he gives her his driver's license and social security card. These were his personal forms of identification. Well, when Tamar became pregnant and Judah learned about it, he wanted to put her to death for violating his family's honor. But Tamar proved herself to be cleverer and bolder than Judah 
when she was brought before Judah and she said, the man to whom these belong is the father of my child. And who do they belong to? They belong to Judah. Now you may think, well, how did Judah respond to that? Probably not well. This sounds like an episode of Jerry Springer, right? I mean, it's just this. But listen to what Genesis 38:26 says. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. See, Judah had neglected his family. He had rejected his God-given responsibility in failing to care for Tamar. And so she reminded him of his duty, and she herself took action to fulfill her obligation to further Judah's line, not knowing that in doing so, she was ensuring the lineage through which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, himself would be born. Tamar had experienced such tragedy and neglect and was treated so unjustly. And like I said, we can't condone what she did. The the point of her story isn't that the ends justify the means. No, the point of her story is that God can take anything that happens to us. He can even take our sin and our wickedness and He can turn it around and use it for His good purposes. And in the end, Tamar experienced the double blessing of twin boys who would take care of her in her old age. And by God's grace, her shattered promises were put back together into a beautiful mosaic of renewed hopes and dreams. Reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28 when he said, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. And this itself echoes the story of Joseph, one of, one of, uh, one of Jacob's sons. You remember Joseph? In fact, the story of Tamar in Genesis 38 is surrounded on both sides by the story of Joseph. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery in Egypt. And through several events, Joseph becomes second in command of Egypt. He's able to use that position to save his family as well as, as tens, if not hundreds of thousands of others. And so listen to what Joseph said. To his brothers, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Whatever's been done to you, however others have treated you, know that God can turn it around and can use it for his glory and your good. Even what others intended to be hurtful, God can use to heal and to forgive and to even save the lives of others. So if you feel like Tamar this morning, know that God can take those shattered promises and make something beautiful out of them. The second thing we learned this morning is that God's grace overcomes a scarlet past. Let's pick up the, the, the genealogy in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. So another Canaanite woman has made it into Jesus' family tree. Rahab. Rahab was a citizen of Jericho. She was a Canaanite. She was an innkeeper. She owned and operated an inn that was on the city wall. And she was a well-known prostitute. Joshua 2 and 6. But Rahab is mentioned several times in the Bible for her faith in the God of Israel and the great risk she took to protect the spies who came to... Scope out Jericho. Now, Rahab's establishment was well known by all the travelers coming and going as a place that you could come and stay the night, but but don't get the wrong picture. It was more of a brothel than a Hampton Inn. And so that's the kind of guys that would be coming to her. Even the king of Jericho knew that when he got word that there were spies lurking about, he knew to go and ask Rahab about them. 
Rahab might have been popular with the men traveling through the region, but she wasn't popular with her family. She lived apart from her family. She was an independent, unmarried woman of ill repute. Who would ever think that such a harlot could become such a heroine in the faith? Yet Rahab became the great-great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? What God can do. And, you know, through her patrons, uh, through all these travelers that would come through her doors, she began to hear stories. Stories about this people that escaped slavery in Egypt. Stories about how their God brought that great empire to its knees through plagues. How He parted the Red Sea for them to cross. How He guided them through their wandering in the wilderness and protected them and gave them victory over all who stood in their way. And equipped with these stories, Rahab was encouraged when these men came to her by the fact they didn't come to her for prostitution, but for protection. These men were different. They worshipped the one true God. And they were on His sacred mission. So with these Hebrew spies at her door, Rahab made a choice. Rather than let her past define her, Rahab decided to put her life on the line and protect these men. She rejected her pagan upbringing. She rejected her sinful lifestyle. And she declared her faith in the God of the Hebrews. In fact, in Joshua chapter 2, she explains to these spies the stories that she has heard. And she makes her declaration of faith. Listen, listen to this account here, beginning in Joshua 2, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to Sahon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Listen to this. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives are your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Rahab's faith was a practical faith, wasn't it? She was concerned with her survival and with the survival of her estranged family. She chose to overcome her scarlet past. She dared to embrace God's plan for her life, for her family, and for her land. And see, we see that God was already at work in her heart, restoring her to holiness and to honor, because though her sins had isolated her from her family, she wanted them to be spared. God gave her a practical faith, but He also gave her a daring and courageous faith. Maybe this morning you feel like you've been branded with a scarlet letter. You carry your past around like heavy chains. I hope Rahab's story can show you that God can forgive any sin. He can wipe away any and every sordid detail from your past. You know, the day she opened her door to those two Hebrew spies, there's no way Rahab understood that she was being a part of God's plan to give His people the promised land, to establish them as priests on the earth, and to prepare a lineage by, that she would be a part of by which the Son of God Himself would be born to open the door of salvation to all who would believe, including you and me. You think Rahab understood that? Of course not. And maybe this morning you don't understand either, but 
Don't let anyone tell you that you're beyond redemption. That you're past forgiveness or that God can't use you. Rahab would be the first to tell you that God's grace, His grace can give you a new future and a hope. And through you, He can bring that same new future and hope to others. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is speaking to these new believers that themselves came out of paganism. And he, he lists and describes all these sins that they had been guilty of. But then Paul says this, And that is what some of you were. But no more. You were that. But now you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus Christ can take any scarlet past and wash it as clean as and white as snow. doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus can forgive. God's grace can overcome your past. Third, God's grace can overcome set patterns in our lives. We see that in the next person in the genealogy, Ruth. For the third time, a Gentile woman is a part of God's plan to bring Jesus into the world. See, Ruth was from Moab, but she married a man from Bethlehem. And if you read the book of Ruth, that's where you find her story. And right there at the beginning of her tragic story, her husband, her brother-in-law, her, her, her husband, or her father-in-law, they all die. All these men in her life get sick and they die. But instead of wallowing in her grief and sorrow, Ruth chose to be faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And like Tamar and Rahab, there's no way that Ruth knew how the Lord had called her to be a part of His redemptive plan. See, Ruth grew up in a godless home. She was a Moabite. They, they were pagans. They worshipped this god, Chemosh, to whom they offered human sacrifices. So you see, everything, all the influences growing up were against Ruth ever knowing the God of the Bible. Yet by His divine plan, she married into the people of Israel. So what changed Ruth's life? What, how did she go from being a, a widowed, childless Moabite woman to the great-grandmother of the greatest king Israel ever had? I think it was through the powerful, loving example of her mother-in-law, Naomi. See, Naomi so loved Ruth and treated her like a daughter that, that Ruth loved her. That she won Ruth's undying loyalty. And so rather than go back to her parents and religion and the lifestyle of her culture, Ruth chose instead to leave all of that behind and in every way possible become an Israelite. I mean, Naomi begged Ruth to stay in Moab. Told her, said, go find your new husband, start a new life. But listen to the decision that God placed in Ruth's heart. Ruth 1, 16 and 17. Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me and be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. By God's grace, Ruth overcame the set patterns in her life that had been ingrained in her from her childhood. She found a new determination to find a new life with Naomi's people. She found a new direction. And I don't mean just following Naomi to Bethlehem, but choosing to follow the God of Naomi the rest of her life. She found a new dependence, trusting in the Lord to provide for her basic needs. Really, it's a statement of faith when Ruth says, where you stay, I will stay, because as, as widowed, childless women in that culture, they would be totally dependent on the charity of others. And as far as either Ruth or Naomi were concerned, when they got to Bethlehem, they wouldn't have any place to stay and, stay and they'd be homeless. So Ruth is choosing to have a new dependence on the God of Israel. 
she found a new desire. Ruth understood that to take the God of Israel as her God would be taking His people as her people too. And listen, it's no small matter to change your loyalty and your sense of identity from one nation to another. I mean, I've been in Georgia for 18 years and I still say go Vols every fall. So imagine changing your whole nationality, your whole identity, rejecting the culture you grew up in and embracing an entirely different culture with different beliefs and practices and values. But that was what Ruth desired. She found a new devotion to Naomi's God, which she had already learned through experience was a God who didn't necessarily spare His people from suffering and sorrow. I mean, Ruth had no illusions that faith in God would make her life easy or prosperous. But Ruth also saw the strength of faith and the grace with which Naomi handled the grief in her life. It was Naomi's testimony that brought this new devotion to Ruth. And finally, it brought both a new dedication and a new destiny to Ruth. I mean, she was willing to die and be buried with her mother-in-law. In other words, Ruth is saying that her decision is a decision for life. She's not giving herself any, any out. If they get to Bethlehem and things don't work out that great, she's not giving herself away to return to Moab. She is saying, not even death will stop me from being associated with you and your God and this new people. I encourage you on this Mother's Day to read the story of Ruth. It's four chapters, really short. It's a beautiful story. And you'll learn that God did provide for these women, that Boaz was their kinsman redeemer, where Judah and his sons shirked their responsibility. Boaz fulfilled his responsibility. He took Ruth as his wife. He provided for Naomi. And Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed, who had become the grandfather of King David. Ruth broke out of the set patterns in her life. She dared to follow God into the great unknown. What set patterns do you need to overcome in order to follow God's call on your life? Perhaps there's some ways that your parents raised you that weren't exactly healthy or biblical. Or maybe you've just found yourself in a rut you need God's help to break you out of. What healthy patterns do you need to establish in your home? Consider Ruth's new patterns. I mean, she, she directed her life as a follower of God. Will you direct your life as a follower of Jesus Christ? Will you depend on His provision, wisdom, and strength? Will you embrace God's church as a spiritual family who can come alongside you and walk with you on this journey of motherhood? Will you devote yourself fully to God? No turning back. See, that's how you begin to bear spiritual fruit as a father of Christ. And that's how you can begin to lead your family down that path of discipleship to help them to begin to think, act, and be more like Jesus. That's what God's grace can do. It can help you overcome those set patterns. And number four, God's grace can help you overcome sinful pleasure. If you look at the rest of verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Poor Bathsheba doesn't even get her name mentioned, but Bathsheba, once more, just like those before her, enters the story of Jesus through suffering and loss. Like Rahab and Tamar, she enters the story through sin and shame. Her story can be found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You know, she was married to one of David's mightiest warriors, one of his best friends, but David lusted after her and took her for himself. And when she became pregnant, to make a long story short, David basically had her husband killed on the field of battle. Bathsheba lost everything. And even the child that she conceived shortly after it was born died. 
What cruelty she experienced at the hands of men. What sorrow she bore. But in the midst of her sorrow, this woman witnessed a change in her new husband. She saw David transform from a strutting sinner to a repentant and humble servant of God. And then God blessed her with other sons and daughters. And one of those sons was Solomon. He would be the next king of Israel. He'd be called the wisest man to ever live and would build the very temple of God in Jerusalem. See, Bathsheba could have could have lost all of that. Bathsheba could have let that one sin, that one mistake, she could have let that dominate and ruin her life. But she didn't. She believed that she had the forgiveness of God and she decided to put her sin behind her. In Psalm 32, 5, David writes this prayer about what it's like to experience the forgiveness and grace of God. And I think that Bathsheba you know, probably had prayed this prayer herself. Psalm 32, 5 says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Through her repentance and God's forgiveness, Bathsheba was able to guide her family to a better future. And I can only imagine that she must have used her experiences as a warning to her son Solomon. When you read Proverbs, Solomon writes a lot about, you know, watch out for the wayward woman and don't go into her and and, and make sure you're faithful to your marriage vows. He writes a lot about that. And I, I can only imagine that that was the influence of his mother. Now, we know that Solomon later in life had his own issues and his own difficulties, but perhaps it was Bathsheba's influence on him that kept him from completely rejecting the Lord in his ways. As one of Solomon's own Proverbs say, Start children off on the way they should go. And even when they were old, they would not turn from it. Some scholars even speculate that the Proverbs 31 woman was actually based on Solomon's mother Bathsheba. Now, that is an interesting note for us to conclude on. Because we started off talking about how this proverbial woman can maybe be a discouragement to Christian wives and mothers. as just as an unattainable example you can't live up to. But if indeed Solomon wrote this with Bathsheba in mind, and again, we don't know for certain that he did, but just imagine with me, if Proverbs 31 was based on Bathsheba, what lesson does that teach us today? It teaches us that it doesn't matter what shattered promises you've suffered or what your scarlet past may be. It doesn't matter what set patterns have held you back or what sinful pleasures you're guilty of indulging, we're all here by the grace of God. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. Because it's not about our efforts or abilities or our pedigrees or our past. It's all about the promise-keeping, story-rewriting, chain-breaking, sin-cleansing, love and grace of God Almighty. So don't let your past your pain, your failures, or your fears keep you from the spiritual power and progress that God wants for you. This morning I want to ask you, have you let Jesus Christ come into your life? Have you experienced His transforming, loving, forgiving grace and power? Because when you place your faith in Him, He can begin to make you into that wife, that mother, that daughter, that sister, that friend that you thought you could never be. And men, the same thing goes for us. Jesus can forgive anything you've done. He can give you a fresh new story to tell with your life. He can make you a better husband, a better father, a better brother, son, or friend. Will you trust Him today? Have you given your faith, your heart, 
to Jesus Christ and asked Him to forgive you and give you that fresh start. He wants to transform you this morning. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and I hope that if you don't know Jesus Christ, if there's any doubt whatsoever in your mind, that you'd come this morning and know today that you belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Maybe this morning you've been worshiping with us for some time and you feel like this is the church home that God would have you to join. Listen, just like the people in the Bible, just like any of us, this church doesn't have it all together. We don't have all of our ducks in a row. We're not perfect. We're still in process. But this is a church family that will put their arms around you. They will love you the way that you are. And they will walk with you down that path of motherhood or fatherhood or manhood or womanhood. This church will help you become who it is that God wants you to be if you would come and unite with us today. Or maybe God's put something else on your heart. But whatever He said to you, I pray you would respond. Let's stand, let's pray together, and then let's sing. And you come. Father, we thank You for Your undying love for us, Your grace and mercy, Your patience and kindness that we do not deserve. And part of the expression of that grace is the women that You've put into our lives, the mothers and grandmothers, the the, the, the mother-like figures in our lives who have been mentors, who have discipled us, who have modeled Christ-likeness before us, we thank You for them. And we pray, Father God, that You would help us to become not like those women, but like You, the God that they are pointing us to. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that needs to put their faith and trust in Christ, that as we sing, they would come and do so. They would come and unite with this church family. They would come and pray at this altar. And deal with you, Father, and walk out of this place right with you and ready to be the men and women you've created them to be. In the name of Christ we pray.